0: This Westwards Mini Masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwords.com.au. Hello and welcome to today's Mini Masterclass with me, James Roy. I'm from Westwards, and today I'm talking to Paula Kelly Paul. Now. Paula, you. how are you today? You're down in Mornington, uh, Mornington Peninsula, aren't you? I almost said Mornington. That's Island. Right. that's the other end of the country.
1: Even further Even south. Even
0: further than that, uh, you're down. I
1: am, I am near Wilson's Promontory at a Little Plenty town with 200 people. It's not really a town. It's a area. A hamlet um, it's on a, well, it's actually on an isthmus. So we have, you know, water either side oh, of it. And, I like um,
0: isthmuses. They're, they're, yes. It's hard to say, but but yes. nice places to be. My favourite one, I don't know if you've been there, is Foster Tun Curry, which is yes. oh, a lovely isthmus as well.
1: <laughs> my, my mother's family um, come from Foster. So it's a beautiful place. I had a couple of visits there when I was a kid. It's, it's
0: Except fun. that's that's a lake on one side and yeah, the ocean, ocean on the other, whereas you've got ocean on both sides, have you? Yes,
1: yeah. Well, inlets and then ocean. So the inlets wow. are corner inlet and uh, shallow inlet. So great fishing, amazing fishing, flathead, snapper, calamari, you name it, it's fantastic. But um, beautiful place in the world. So it's the most southern tip of mainland Australia, Wilson's Promontory. So we're right at right the gate of the promontory, so lots of fabulous walks and views and just divine we're very lucky
0: okay so when do we all move in that sounds like (laughs) yes
1: well we are renovating here so you know it'll be quite a big home by the time we're done you know we've we've got got a lot of listeners
0: so i don't know if there's enough (laughs) well
1: we've got five kids between us uh between Damien and i so you know there's a bit of a tribe to house when they come and go Mm, so all
0: right so just a little bit of background on you um you you are currently the leader of growth and development at rayco and this is a company that helps design libraries and learning spaces and all that sort of thing which we're going to talk about in a, in a minute. I first met Paula uh, when I was invited to a wonderful conference down in Melbourne called Reading Matters yeah. um, and I think at that stage you were you were at the State Library of Victoria but part of but one of the projects you oversaw was the Centre for Youth Literature
1: right? Yes that's right yes so it was a wonderful time actually James we had a incredible um ceo and leader at the time anne-marie schwertlick who was running the state library victoria and she um she went on to become subsequently the national librarian so was Mm -hmm. it hunted for that role so it gives you a sense of her caliber Mm -hmm. um and she was very creative and i think very um open-minded and i was very fortunate to work underneath her with um, andrew hiskins who was my manager at the time and uh, we developed this reader development portfolio it was the first one in the country that that um contained within it the Center for Youth Literature, which of course had been Agnes Neuenhausen's baby for um, some 20 years before that. And, you know, there were big shoes to fill. We had a great oh, team there, messy. though. Yeah, I know, as if we we, we tried. But, you know, well, we didn't even try because we knew we couldn't. And, um, you know, Agnes really had shifted the dial on young adult literature in this country, and, and that was an incredible legacy that she left us with. So at the time, you know, we decided to broaden out the portfolio to include reading promotion and reader development for the very youngest of our Australian citizens, so babies really, you know, from three months old, right through to birth to the grave, we used to call it. So, you know, adult reading promotion programs, including the summer read. And um, during that time, I was involved in um, helping establish the National Year of Reading with Sue McCarrick in 2012. And also, I had the most wonderful good fortune of um, being offered and, and being awarded a Churchill Fellowship um, during that time in 2010, where I got to travel the world looking at reading promotion programs and literacy programs and reading programs and, you know, 52 destinations in seven and a half weeks, five continents. Incredible opportunity.
0: What is this international travel of which you speak? I, I...
1: I know, I know. Isn't it just like, a you know, a fantasy now, isn't it? You know, how yeah. lucky was I to For be sure. able to do that? And speaking um, of
0: international, I mean that that reading matters conference that I'm talking about that really stuck in my memory as being an amazing event because we had such a high caliber of of local but also international authors. I think it was the one where i I still occasionally get brownie points for this with um, younger readers when I tell them that i I took John Green to the football. <laughs> <laughs>
1: absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mel Pete, amazing. the
0: sadly departed Mal Pete, was there, yeah. and yeah. MT Anderson, and I think um, Kathy. John
1: Boyne, or was that the next year? It might have been the year before.
0: No, John Boyne wasn't. No, it was uh, Kathy. Kathy Cassidy, is it? Oh
1: yes, Kathy Cassidy. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, fantastic.
0: And then, of course, a yeah. whole bunch of uh, amazing Australian presenters as well. So That's that cool. really st- stuck in my mind has been one of those few conferences where I felt I actually wanted to go to every session and i went to every single session and every one of them was just a knockout so it was a terrific time anyway
1: it was and and can i just say um quite uniquely for conferences uh one of the things that we held true to that agnes actually established when she established that conference way back when was to only have a single program so you went you know you went to everything so you didn't miss out on anything Mm. and um it's a challenge. There's at
0: least anxiety, doesn't it, when you go to a really good conference and there's concurrent sessions and you go, oh, I really wanted to see yeah, both of these. So. Yeah.
1: It was a big deal. You know, it, was, it would absolutely flatten us um, when we finished, you know, delivering it. Um, Mike and Lily and I would be, and particularly Mike and Lily, they were absolutely amazing. We would be completely exhausted at the end of it. But it was a wonderful, wonderful time, you know, an mm. incredible Incredible opportunity, and we we all loved it with a passion. And and you're right, you know, had some really incredible international stars that really, again, Agnes started that legacy of, of really putting young adult literature on the map by by including that international, you know, series of stars. Which over the years we had, as was mentioned earlier, we had people like John Boyne, you know, Cassandra Clare. Um, We had. Uh, the wonderful um, Neil Gaiman, you know, people like that, who were really just rock stars. You know, when we had Neil Gaiman over, I remember there were people lining up down La Trobe Street for four blocks to have their book signed. You know, it was hours and hours of book signings. And one of my little claim to fames, which I love about that time, was um, Elise Hurst. We were doing something with her at the time. So she was on, on that program. And she came to see Neil, of course, as well. And unbeknownst to me, he'd been her absolute teenage hero. You know, I just didn't know that. But when she was there, you know, I'd been a big fan of Elisa's work and launched a couple of her books over a career, particularly at Carlton Library when I was managing that back in 2020. Sorry, 2000, year 2000. Anyway, she said to me, oh, you know, um, I would have loved to have met Neil, but I, I can't wait for, you know, all those people. And I said, one of the privileges of, of my role is I can actually take you straight up on the stage and I can introduce you right now because he should see your moleskin. So, you know, Lise carries around a little swathe of moleskins in her handbook handbag mm-hmm. and is always doodling and, and does the most exquisite line drawings. Like it's just breathtaking. And she, um, so I introduced her to, to Neil and, and he said, Oh my God. When I said, you've got to see her moleskins. He said, Oh my God. He said, I've got to leave on a plane to Sydney as soon as I finish signing. Can I take these with me? And it was like Elise was being asked to hand over her firstborn child, you know, like (laughs) it was a big deal to hand over these precious things. But the agent said, I promise you, I will guard them with my life and I will post them back, you know, in a registered post bag tomorrow because he's flying back to the US um, the next day or whatever. Anyway, so she did. And that was 10 years before he came back to her. So they kept a little thing going over the years. And 10 years later, he came back to her and said, you know, I'd like you to illustrate um, the ocean at the end of the lane. Amazing. So, you know, what an incredible Opportunity um, and a wonderful thing for for Elise to be able to do for her hero. You know, my, my,
0: my hero story isn't quite as impressive as that. Um, I was at a, a school in in Adelaide, and I saw somebody reading *The Fault in Our Stars* by John oh, Green. Yes. So I said to this young lady, she's like in year ten or something, and I said, "Would you be impressed if I told you that I'd once took John Green to the football?" Yeah. And her response was, oh, "That's amazing! Can I get your autograph?"
1: Oh. <laughs> Beautiful guy, <laughs> proxy.
0: I love it. Say, "Oh my god!" She said, "What's he like?" And I said, "He's awful." Such
1: a great guy, isn't no, he? It? Is. He's a
0: lovely guy. It was, good Anyway,
1: guy like. we
0: should try to get on with what we're here to talk about. We could. Yeah, reminis- except
1: I want to say one more. One more. Oh, sure, really sure. love of the American kind of guys is David Leatherton.
0: Oh yes, I think he. Yeah, he was, yeah, he he wrote was wrote there that year Boy as well. Boy. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, and he wrote "Boy Meets Bar." Boy, it was first accessible LGBTIQA you know accessible novel that we had for young people that really at the time tackled that boy meets boy literally mm. the topic of boy meets boy in such a beautiful sensitive and respectful way it was just sensational i'll never forget him saying how important it is that young people see themselves on the on the books uh on the sh- sorry see themselves in the books on the shelves in libraries when they walk into them And it really affected me it really stayed with me that idea that we needed to make sure that young people could see themselves in the books in libraries and and particularly as i became a a library manager uh, again and was managing collections and guiding staff around that it was really important to me to to make sure we were doing that and keeping a really strong flavor of inclusion and diversity um, in the work that i did um, as a library manager and of course as a community development manager too
0: well, you so. did talk about that a little bit. I, I was on um, on a panel with him at the Perth Writers Festival one year, and I noticed, and this was a ticketed event, and it was, wasn't cheap. I think it was fifteen dollars a ticket or something mm-hmm. um, for the panel. And that, none of them were there to see me or or the other person. They were there to see to see okay. David. But I noticed that there were only three young people in the in the in the tent, and they were all in the front row. Mm. But then, when I went outside at the end of the session, I saw all their friends. Sitting against the wall of the tent outside, and they'd been listening in. Wow! And um, I, I chatted with them, and they said, "Like well, we couldn't all afford to go in, so three of three of them went in just so i could take a couple of photos and stuff and and listen." But the rest of us, and so there would have been a, a dozen or more sitting against the tent on the outside listening in, and they all went over under the tree and sat down and were were talking about it. And so David went over and sat down with them and chatted th- oh, with them okay. for about half an hour. And later on, I said to him. I said, that that was very generous of you. And he said, look, if they're going to work that hard to hear what I have to say, then I want to say it to their face. Mm. And the other thing he said, which I found really interesting, because he he had become part of the Nerdfighters, if you like, by virtue of writing Will Grayson, Will Grayson with with John Green. And he said to me, when you're invited into a club as exclusive as the Nerdfighters, he said, you make the most of every opportunity that comes to you and you give back as much as you can yeah. so yeah he's, he's an incredibly generous guy but uh yeah. we look we've strayed way off what we're here we to talk about. Sorry. it's not a bad direction <laughs> to go in though is it it's yes. um,
1: no, absolutely fun and very related anyway to libraries and collections and the stuff that we do want to talk about so well yeah
0: so let's talk about that because yeah. what I, what i wanted to chat with you about mainly today was libraries because you're very passionate about libraries mm. um and and the people who work in those libraries. But they've really changed, haven't they? Because back in the day, libraries were private things people had in their homes and they became public libraries where if you couldn't afford a book or if you or you wanted a particular book and just needed access to it, you go there and people would shush at you. Mm. Um, You know, like the, the Nancy Pearl. We've talked yes. in the past about yeah. the Nancy Pearl um, action <laughs> figure with patented shushing action, you know, <laughs> um, and she... And it was interesting. You and I were working on a panel for a, a prize recently, and you brought up the exact quote that I've used so many times: the idea that writers get uh, young readers, and I, but I would argue all readers get into a story through one of four doors: through mm. character, plot, language, or setting. Mm. I don't know if I can make that relevant. I just I think it's a lovely, lovely quote to to know. But and Absolutely. so how how have libraries changed? They kind of accelerated, didn't they, towards the, mm-hmm. the back end of the eighties and onwards, they they really changed form. What what was the driving force behind that?
1: Well, really, you know, we hit the information age, well and truly, um, at that point, James. So so the the real focus for that time was Um, having librarians and libraries be the navigators of information at a time when sort of the information age was exploding. Um, There was a big focus on information skills development. And, um, you know, the the, the sort of focus shifted from, I I sort of see libraries in two ways, you know, about information provision and about um, reading promotion. And they do a whole lot more than that, obviously, but in terms of just talking about the sort of the base model, if you like um from from old days and certainly uh what happened around 2000 was that we started to think about reading quite differently again we started to think about the role of librarians in promoting reading so there was a big sort of shift um during that time this big sort of heyday of information provision and information explosion and the expertise of librarians being developed around information literacy and um Then the sort of Internet started becoming a little bit of a thing for people that they could search things themselves. They could find, you know, different things online. And there was a whole sort of revolution. You'll remember, I'm sure, of, you know, what were we going to call libraries and what was the role of the library. And, you know, there were all sorts of names coming up, information hubs or, um, you know, knowledge centers or whatever. Um, And at the same time, we had this beautiful refocus on reading promotion. And that really was probably generated by a little bit of Nancy Pearl in there for sure, Agnes doing what she did, Agnes Neuenhausen, of course, at the Centre for Youth Literature, really promoting that that focus on the impact of reading on a young person's brain, teenager's brain in particular, and their life and their ability to empathise and be in the other's shoes, etc. But also there was Rachel Van Reel from opening the book in um, the UK was a great and still is a great promoter of reading and the impacts of recreational reading on people's lives. So I was lucky enough to be at that time, um, you know, involved in an organisation just before I went to the State Library actually um, at Yarra Melbourne Regional Library Corporation as the library services manager. And it was a wonderful opportunity to really, you know, test out some of these ideas about promoting reading. And subsequently, when I was um, appointed as the manager of the Centre for Youth Literature uh, at the State Library, I then had a chance to sort of um, really expand that portfolio into reading promotion from birth to the grave. So it was, I think I might have said that earlier, you know, it was a fantastic time for a focus on the impact of reading and what it would do to people's lives. Um, So, you know, libraries at that point, were really focused on promoting reading. There was a lot of literacy work being done for both, particularly around early literacy, and then um, subsequently for adult literacy as well. And and about the same time around about the sort of, you know, fast forwarding now to the 2010s, was when we had, well, 2012, we had our first national year of reading that um, I was involved with with Sue McCarrick and others in in getting going and, and establishing the funding for that and the delivery of that through public libraries in Australia. And further to that, then, this focus that has really generated in the last decade around community, so a sense of place, a a sense of building strength in communities, a place where people can come together and meet and converse and develop their citizenship, if you like.
0: You certainly see this. You see it in the cities and in the suburbs, but you certainly see it in regional areas where the library, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, but the library really is the... The hub of information it's where you get go if you want to find out what community events are on it's where you go if you want to find out you know if you can get a particular person to come to your area it's where you go to to look things up or or absolutely. go find a justice of the peace or whatever really isn't it
1: yeah absolutely and and not just in regional areas you know that's that's very much the the offering of public libraries and in fact you know um it's job skills it's it's uh employable skills it's it's what we call democratised learning. You know, there's a whole world of access that you can have through things like LinkedIn learning that some libraries subscribe to so that their members can subscribe to that for free and learn about anything you could ever wish to learn about online. So as well as the sort of focus that some of our libraries have. So after I left the State Library, um, I was appointed as the manager of the Melbourne Library Service and had the great fortune of leading a number of really wonderful library developments, including Library at the Dock, which was really the first um, public makerspace in Australia. So we generated this fabulous opportunity. You know, We had the first recording studio, the first, uh, as I said, Makerspace and, and an area where people could come together and do something quite different in libraries. And, and it was really interesting to see that we would have wait lists a mile long for people to come in free programs, of course. Um, and, you know, they came from all over Greater Melbourne to come to these uh, workshops that we would hold. and. You know, I suppose when I was in that role, my intention was to again just shift the brief a bit. So I started some new job descriptions. I think one of the ones I called was the Creative Technologies Activator, was one of the roles that we put in place at that library. And you know, we had 14 new staff on the on the on the, the gang, if you like, um on the team. We had about 110 staff at that stage and we had 14 new completely new roles at that library beautiful library if you haven't been james i encourage you to go and visit it when you get to melbourne it's just it's a stunner still which is. one
0: is it again is library it? at
1: the dock so it's down in dockland oh yeah. yeah and it was well before its time before there was really a community there but it was built um as a tri partnership between uh len who is the b- big building developer down in the docklands area who provided the building funding uh, state government who provided some land and local government who provided the funding, you know, top-up funding. So it was sort of three-way partnership, fantastic project to work on and, and to lead and to bring into operations. Um, but, you know, if you think about what happened then from that makerspace, space, um, it, it, that took off too. So that libraries then became this place for creative technology learning and, and, you know new skills and then meet up places for for nerdy types of people who love all that stuff you know so when i say nerdy i say that tongue-in-cheek it's just fantastic what mm. what people can do with um you know their 3d printers their laser cutters and you know radio stations that they're running from one of the other libraries that we built after that was the kathleen Syme library and community center and um you know they set up a local community radio in that recording studio um and you know we had a a comics lab and we had a community kitchen and you know a beautiful sense of the libraries that were being built say in the last decade in particular have been community hubs even if they're not called a community hub um they are it's
0: it's evidenced in sorry Mm -hmm. but it's evidenced in places like the library where i was spending a lot of time when i first started with westwards which was blacktown library um max weber in blacktown and and the language classes that are run mm-hmm. because you know there's so many different different languages spoken in well they were mostly learning english but coming from a lot of different backgrounds and and <coughs> trying to dislodge the knitting ladies from their from their thursday cl- club meet up in the in the big room is, is, a, is a bit of a challenge but you know <laughs> more power moving nights, all that sort of thing yeah. so yeah that, but yeah that so that's you think that that has all really accelerated in the in that last well, period
1: of time? I do in the last 10 years. And I was just thinking, um, you know, back to when uh, it's probably 15 years ago or more now, when I was at the Yarra Melbourne Regional Library Corporation, it's probably a bit more than that, actually, when we established the City Library in Philinders Lane in Melbourne. And it's an incredible, uh, you know, incredible success because it's in a very, very busy part of Melbourne. Um, it was on the ground floor of the CAE. So of course that partnership, um whilst it was you know interesting to navigate, to say the least, it also meant that there was a cohort of people coming in who had this sort of you know learning need as well. Um, but the conversational English classes, I think that's where they started too, was at that city library where we had you know all sorts of um people across a broad range of uh, ages and cultures came together to have conversational English classes. and it was really about that that sort of community, connection and community transference of literacy if you like in the adult you know english literacy kind of sense so yeah i think the last decade it's been really evident that 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 libraries have become so much more than just books but i will say this i truly believe that a library is still defined by having books in it so you know
0: well, that that brings me to my next question, really, because I mean we haven't talked about libraries in the time of COVID. We'll talk about that later because that's a obviously a different kind of thing. Mm. And we, we haven't really talked about things like university libraries because I think they are a, a slightly different animal they as well. Are. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're you're talking about public libraries, but we can talk about okay. school libraries as well. And you've touched on something I was going to ask you about because I um in the years that I've been working in schools, you know, the last two and a half decades working in schools. I've noticed, I won't say which state, but there's a couple of states in particular that seem to be doing this a lot more. You would go and you would find that the libraries had been gutted to the point where there is one teacher librarian
1: mm. and one
0: librarian assistant. If you're lucky, if you're lucky. Mm. And I had one at a fairly large public school. um I was told that the the book budget for the year that they had been given by the pr- principal was two and a half thousand mm. dollars, which is which is nothing. It's nothing, right. absolutely. And, and she said to me, she said to me that her principal had come and said to her, "Well, I don't know what you're complaining about. The book is dead anyway." <laughs> um. And to me, what that said was that
1: he's, he's not smart, reading anything that's of any worth in terms of the topic because well, it's
0: it's, like. it's that, but it's also for me, it said more about the principal than anything else that's that what I mean. that he, and it was a he that he, um, he felt he had a deep misunderstanding of what librarians and teacher librarians do. He obviously thought mm-hmm. all you do is cover books and put them on shelves. Yes,
1: yes. What
0: is the role of the modern teacher librarian? Is it more teacher or more librarian or is it really a... Oh, a,
1: look, it's definitely uh, a morph. It's it's a morph of the two, definitely. I'm actually qualified teacher librarian myself and, and you know, had background as an educator, as my first profession as a primary school teacher and secondary as well in graphic design. But the... Um, the role is absolutely a hybrid of teaching and librarianship, and it's actually quite a unique role in that sense, because you bring to the role that, that core educator, which which a librarian as such isn't. That That's not a librarian who's a librarian. It, it's a different role. A teacher-librarian has all of that um, pedagogy, the understanding of child development, the understanding of um, really a deep understanding of the way in which you help learners learn. So it's quite a different role. So you'll see in, in schools where they've got a really good teacher librarian who's qualified, well-trained, has lots of experience, um, or could be a young younger teacher librarian. I'm not saying they have to have lots of experience, but someone who's passionate about it is going to be engaging the kids in a, in a particular way around their learning and is most concerned about that. And, and, in, you know, I've got a couple of really good girlfriends who are fantastic teacher librarians and I admire them immensely what they've been able to do. Sally Sutherland comes to mind, who's now retired, but she was at Melbourne Girls College for a while and, um, and then at Genizano for a little while um, alongside Susan LaMarca. And the other one is Annie Devonish, who's currently the head of um, school library at Campbell Girls Grammar. And some of the things that they do, for example, as teacher librarians, uh, is about really um, nurturing kids along with a great love of literature and a great love of reading, no matter what their interest is, you know? So there's a much more curatorial and um, mentoring role in a way that a teacher brings to that space. I think it's, it's heartbreaking, to be honest, that um, there's been a reduction of qualified teacher librarians, I think, in libraries across this country. And I say that not because I'm snobbish about it, but because I understand the impact of the role. And what breaks my heart about it is that with the evolution of funding going, decisions going to principals who don't understand the role, they usually or often, not usually, but often will make decisions to fund something else, you know, the sport, new sports oval or the arts program or whatever else it is because there's all these competing demands because, as we know, schools are underfunded. Mm. So what we find is is that we've got, uh, you know, schools that have an opportunity if they had a a qualified teacher librarian or a well-trained teacher librarian and they had a collection budget that was commensurate with the community they're serving, they would find that their literacy scores and their overall performance of the school would go through the roof which there is evidence that demonstrates that and the thing that i don't understand is why principals don't know that piece of information because if i was a principal mm. i'd be doing everything i could to make sure that my school was performing in terms of performance i mean you know having the greatest positive impact on the kids lives that it could and as we know with with particularly with little people, their early literacy, what they develop by the age of eight is what stays with them for a very long time. So if kids haven't had a really rich experience, both, you know, from my perspective, it's from three months old as a baby, that's what the literature and the the research shows us. But, you know, even if that can't happen, if they have preschool and the very early years of school where they're getting rich experience, rich language, um beautiful exposure to books that are just you know engaging and and in in good order and and are enticing you know like old collections don't impress anyone unless you're a researcher you know okay. they just don't unfortunately you know and that's where you know the reduction in spending on a collection budget you know if you have a look at what happened in the uk james and i'm talking about school uh, public libraries just at the moment but there's a corollary there mm. is that the first thing they did in a lot of the little libraries in the UK was cut their collections budget. Well, guess what happened next? A reduction in people going to the library because hmm. the books weren't there that they wanted. So then the local councils would say, Oh, well, not enough people are coming to the library. Why are we bothering having a library? We'll close the library. So then they close the little libraries and you know they might build a big library like Birmingham. Let's take that as an example 185 million pound, million pounds like. What's that in Australian dollars, 300 300 million, something like that. Um, That library is extraordinary. However, when I went to visit it uh, on part of my uh, Churchill Fellowship, no, it wasn't, no, I actually went there, no, it was after that, sorry, Um,
0: You just went there as a nerdy tourist, didn't you? I did, because that's what you do
1: when you're a library nerd, right? (laughs) You go to libraries and bookshops when you're on holidays. Yeah, no, I was actually on holiday because I I took my son with me, um, in fact. So that was a wonderful trip where... Um yeah, I, I made him come along on my nerdy library visits. It's very funny. He was he was only 10 at the time. I'm not sure how happy he was about that, but he seemed to enjoy himself. Um, we'd gone to Harry Potter's world beforehand, so he's pretty happy about that on the way to the Birmingham Library, so it was all right. Um but certainly um, you know, at that library they hadn't resourced the collection enough and they hadn't resourced the staff. Now they didn't know who I was because I was just going in as a tourist, right? First thing that happened was a library staff member handed me a, a survey, not a survey, a petition to petition the local government about the cuts that they were making to this 185 million pound library that had only been open for 12 months. So. You know, coming back to collections, one of the things that I'm very proud of, um, James, in my recent roles as library managers before I came to my current role to what I lovingly called coming to the dark side because I've gone into the corporate sector or really mm. part of a different part of the ecosystem is really what I talk about because, you know, the the, the companies that support libraries are really an important part of the, the whole picture of it. But when I was the library manager at Melbourne and then subsequently at Hobson's Bay, one of the things I did at both those libraries, library services was to establish a ten year collection plan based on the recommended you know numbers of books you should have per head of population or if in a school there's also a school standard as well where you say you need to have x amount of books per child to support curriculum um, development and curriculum uh, learning, curriculum based learning. And you know I made the case to the councillors in this case in both those councils to say we need, you know, you're currently allocating this much. And in both cases, I was able to make a case to allocate, you know, from 600000 to a million dollars. And then in the case of Melbourne, it was more than that. And then to set up a 10-year plan, which enabled a 12.5% renewal of those collections every year. And the reason why we did that was to make sure that the overall collection had 60% of it under five years old. And that's a standard that you you have to have in public libraries. Otherwise, your collection is old. It's it's, and we're not we're not collecting libraries like same with schools are a bit different because they have to have collection that matches curriculum need. Right. So that's the fundamental collection difference between a school library and a public library in terms of the collection. But public library collections are all about. Yes, having some local history. Yes, having special collections that you might have an environmental collection if your library focuses on that, like Altona Library, or you might have a makerspace or a tech, you know, creative tech uh, collection or whatever. You might have languages other than English in well, most public libraries do focus on a particular language or a number of languages. Um, but in in outside of that, you really should have popular, pretty new material, because you know, if it's older than five years old, you can get it from your state library. Because we have a legal deposit system in this country where every single book that's ever written, including ephemera more so as well now, is actually has a legal deposit into the state library of that state, as well as one to the national library. So we actually have a backup copy as well. So, you know, public libraries do not need to keep things for posterity. Neither do school libraries. Um, And, of course, then we segue into the big question of um, databases and electronic resources and all those things that are becoming more and more available. Um, and we talked about the, the 80s and sort of into the the sort of 90s was when that was really all the big deal was the databases that had come become available, which prior to that really only available through university collections. Um, so, you know, not just databases now, but of course we've got e-books, we've got uh, audio books. Audio books are just going through the roof over the last couple of years. People love them. Um, so collections are a hybrid now rather than one or the other and people read in different mediums. They don't all read just in e-format and they don't all just read in book format. Most people who are members of a library are going to be reading in both. Or well, in
0: let me format. let me paint a scenario for you now and we're, we're going to wrap up in just a oh, sec. Wow. But um, uh, so when I, when I wrote my, which was it, my third book, I was um researching the the Vietnam War and I'd go up to Hornsby Library and I'd come home with you know six or seven ten books and I would go through them and find the facts I needed and I spent a lot of time there and then of course the internet came along and all that stuff sort of well first for a while there we had what was it it was um Encyclopedia Britannica was on a cd rom you could buy And, and 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 then Wikipedia came along and all the rest. Mm-hmm. And now, as I said earlier, everything that you used to, or a lot of the things you used to go to the library for, you can now get on your phone. Mm-hmm. And then I remember in the in the early nineties and then the mid nineties in New York, uh, there were a lot of these re- writing rooms popped up, these writing spaces mm-hmm. where you could go in there and um, there would be a computer there and you could actually work quietly and, and, and surf the internet. Um, but then we got personal internet and Starbucks has internet and now we've got 5G um so what is the li- what is the point of a library now I know that sounds provocative. I don't I don't mean to be provocative, but but what what are they for now?
1: Okay, so you've only given me a couple of seconds to answer this question, and I'm going to give you about a hundred reasons why we need to have libraries. Okay. So, so, you know, I, I wish I'd prepared this earlier because I just would have rattled it off. One, 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 you know, etc Anyway, the point is, is that in terms of um we'll start with internet use. So there are a lot of people in this country who might have a mobile phone. No doubt, I think it's at 98% of people have a mobile phone in their hand these days but not 98% of people have a Wi-Fi connection on their phone. Now, as we know, information's everything. So there's free Wi-Fi. I think I could probably say every single public library in this country available for people to hook into with their mobile device or to book and to use um, a computer if they need it, if they want to print things. So that's the first thing to say.
0: And if you, I think if you go to, um, I don't know if it's it's the case because I haven't been to any of the big libraries for a little while, but I remember going to the big library the um state library in in brisbane and and um you'd see all the students all sitting out the front with their laptops and i assume yeah. it's the, the front same of other public libraries even when the place is closed they're there with yep. their laptops over anyway fact, sorry no
1: good it's, it's relevant and i remember when we redeveloped this melbourne library in george street in melbourne years and years ago and it was one of those beautiful you know we had the money to build a beautiful you know eco-friendly fabulous fabulous space and we put the Wi-Fi on and it was kind of like one of the first libraries that had Wi-Fi that you could use outside the building and people would literally be sitting under the lamplight under the on the seat at three o'clock in the morning and we'd go like what are they doing at three o'clock in the morning but guess what some people do that and and they loved it and so it, it's absolutely you know we we are we have a misconception about everyone having a mobile phone they do. But not everyone has a mobile um, a mobile plan, you know so that so it's it's quite different. The idea of having a mobile phone and having access to the internet is a very different question. So yes, that's that's one. And of course, none of us can do anything uh, even with MyGov. Think about the most vulnerable people in Australia. They're usually people who need to access MyGov for a range of reasons, whether that's through financial support, whether it's at the moment through COVID, you know, being able to to access financial payments because their work has dried up or they've been put off or reduced hours or whatever, but also their health records, also the um, you know anything you need to do, like your 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 immunisation certificate, you have to go into MyGov to have that. So soon. You're going to have to have a mobile plan to be able to access your certificate yourself. So it's all those things that in the first place, yes, because access to Internet is so critical to our lives. The second thing is, is a place for community. So I mentioned this earlier, and that is really the library, you know, back in 2000, when we renovated the what's called the Carlton Library then in North Carlton in Rathdown Street. Andrea Wilson was the architect to work with me on that one. And it was right at the time when, I think it was the first library she'd done actually. And we we put purple and red in the library and everyone freaked out a little bit and white shiny tiles on the outside. And it was all a bit radical at the time. And um, Andrea actually, the reason I mentioned colour was she worked on the Geelong Regional Library and Heritage Centre, which is absolute showstopper, James. When you come to Melbourne next time, you must go and see it. It's seven floors of absolute glorious library with with color and fabulous facilities so um andrea said we wrote an article together in monument which was an uh, architectural magazine um back then and the library is on the front cover which i was very proud of of course when we when we opened it and she said the library is the new church and i thought what an interesting way of seeing it you know it's free it's non-judgmental anyone can use it you and I think the benefit is you don't have to follow a whole lot of rules there are some rules but funnily enough less and less as time goes on which I think is very interesting too and um, you know on that note I guess I, I came into public libraries 25 years ago um, not as a qualified librarian I might add I became a qualified teacher librarian after that um, but I was very passionate as a teacher around literacy and literature so Children's literature, so I was very fortunate to be able to come in um, at that time. And the other
0: way it's like a church, of course, is that your parents get very disappointed when you no longer go.
1: That's true. That's true. You're right. You're right. Um, and the good thing is now is that most libraries have abolished fines as well, which is absolutely fan friggin' fantastic Oh, said yeah. that. Oh. Sorry. Um, you can take out the <laughs> F- bomb later. Um, <laughs> anyway, it, it's just wonderful because to me that was one of the great barriers for people who. You know may have racked up fines and didn't want to go back to the library because they couldn't afford to pay them, you know, and certainly I was a single mum for a while, and that was my case too, for a little while. So I'm not like, I'm, like most social. I'm not a model no.
0: <laughs> like like most social phenomena, um Seinfeld had an episode about that as well, didn't they? the,
1: yeah, exactly. the uh,
0: library police chasing down Jerry. Oh, yeah, Tropic of me. Tropic of Capricorn
1: and what a waste of their time when actually what the role is and just going back to the role of librarians now and the importance of what libraries offer it used to be a transactional kind of relationship where you know there's lots of checking in and checking out of books now you'd have conversations while you're doing that but it was a it was much more transactional whereas these days it's it's conversational it's actually helping people to navigate how do they have their best lives you know so whether that's through getting involved in community programs or getting information about gardening or um, their love lives or or work or whatever it is and and navigating the resources the library provides around all those things as well as uh, incredible fiction collections and um, and children's collections and certainly, you know, children's and early literacy programs. Baby Rhyme Time
0: is very popular at uh, Springwood Library.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And those those things have become, you know, the bread and butter of our libraries now. And and certainly I've been a great, um, passionate advocate of early literacy, as I said earlier, I think, you know, that James Heckman back in 2008, who was the Nobel Prize award winning economist, um, he developed a return on investment graph, which is now known as the Heckman equation. And he proved that the greatest return on investment that any government can make in terms of social capital and competency of our people, you know, strength in our people is zero to three. And that's the time when you're actually developing your greatest capacity from a language point of view and, um, and a literacy point of view. So, you know, I always go back to that time and say, you know, if you do nothing else, invest well in your early years and your early literacy with um, as parents, and as grandparents, and um, in in you know communities that that will change the strength of a community. without there's
0: also there's also a great secondary effect I think with that uh, great secondary benefit, in that you know when you're um, when you've got a young parent, a young mum or a young dad taking their their very young child, to that they're making connections and they're. They're finding community as well and and Absolutely. they become more relaxed which makes baby happier and it has Absolutely. all those additional effects benefits and
1: and benefits of ongoing learning you know i, I have mm. a great uh, mentor and hero of mine dr uh, professor stephen heppel who's uh, a, pro- a professor of new media in the uk at bournemouth university and and the head of um, media studies at uh in the university at madrid and he had some phd students who would develop programs and one of the ones that i love was around a teenage mums program who you know these are 13 year olds with babies like i'm talking they're babies themselves nearly you know kind of heartbreaking really but he, but this phd student of his got these 12 mums together and they ran a program where they decided they'd send a teddy into space so what they did to have to do this was they had to work it out together, you know, under the guidance of the PhD student. And they they worked out a couple of things, you know, like how to what sort of gas you could put in a balloon to make it rise into the ozone layer, um, when the balloon was going to burst and how to save the teddy from, you know, plummeting the earth without, um, you know, uncontrollably. And then they'd lose the teddy anyway. Um, how to program a Lego ramjet um, little coordinator so they could push the teddy out of a basket at a certain time with a parachute so that it would float to the ground elegantly. And they, and then pulling a GPS tracker out of a mobile phone, putting it in the teddy so they could find it later rather than losing it. More, There's more. They also put a camera from a mobile phone in the teddy and programmed it to take a photo every 10 seconds. And then they learned how to make a video and edit it and put it on, the, on YouTube. Now, this is like 10 years ago this happened, right? That video got about seven and a half million hits on it And those kids, those 13-year-old kids, those young mums, every one of them, I get goosebumps telling this story, just retelling it to you now, every single one of those mums either went back into learning at school or came back to it and did further learning around creative technologies of some sort or design or space, you know, like they just... Some of them didn't even know the earth was round, you know, like they got to see the curvature of the earth because the the photographs took photos with Teddy, you know, in the parachute coming down and they saw the curvature of the earth. I mean, phenomenal stuff. So the power of these sorts of programs that libraries are now offering, and certainly one of the last projects that I was involved in before I, I came over to, as I lovingly call the dark side, as I said earlier, Um, was the Creative Technology Hub building that at Hobsons Bay um, in partnership with SeaWorks down on the waterfront at Williamstown. And that's the point of those sort of libraries. You know, it's a library, sort of, but not a library. But, you know, it's a library for all intents and purposes. And it was designed as a space for people to come into who, you know, there are people, let's face it, who will never come into public libraries in Australia. They don't see themselves in libraries. They don't identify with a library, inverted commas, so we are, you know, developing spaces alongside that, that are becoming a bit more interesting and appealing to people who don't see themselves as book people. But having said that, I also want to point out just a final comment that um, Newcastle has got what they call a digital library. And even in that digital library, which I had the good fortune of visiting between lockdown five and lockdown six, actually, funnily enough, I didn't know we were going to have another lockdown, but I snuck out before that all happened. Well, didn't really sneak out. It was just, you know, that's how it turned out. Um, And when I got there, it was really comforting to me that as I walked in, yes, it's a digital library. It's also a council chambers and a council service pod and all sorts of stuff. And it's beautifully designed. But they also have best selling books and you know high volume materials there and newspapers and all the things you kind of expect when you come into a library so people you know who say that the book is not required anymore honestly it, every space i go into we still want to see some books there it might be more or less um, and certainly what the research tells us is that um, people are reading books and the publishing industry is selling, telling us that too. So, you know, it's it's that they haven't gone away. I don't think they'll ever go away. And I think the other thing to say is that I think libraries, everything that's old is new again, because I think they are now the the agora, the, the modern day agora of the old, of where libraries began back in Alexandria, where it was a place for people to orate and share their knowledge and come together in community and find out information that they couldn't access otherwise. You know, this this is what libraries have always been. I think what's changed fundamentally is that we are employing people in libraries who don't want to keep it as a private club anymore. You know, so there's a genuine drive for people to be open, and include the community and and really warmly welcome people. And that's, you know, abolishing fines is part of that. Let's take down the barriers to using these spaces. So yes, to me, I think the library is a new church in many ways, in a good way is what I'm saying, not in all the bad ways that churches can be, but in in all the good ways that they are. And um, I feel incredibly proud to still be associated with them. And that will be my life's work, we'll continue to do that. And my latest uh, connection to that is through IFLA, which is the International Federation of Libraries on the Standing Committee for Reading and Literacy. So I'll be doing this for quite some time, I think, James.
0: <laughs> well, your, your passion is undeniable and your enthusiasm. Um, one last, I haven't got much time, any time, but very quickly, how can we make best use of a library in the, in the COVID era? Well,
1: that's a good question. And what we're seeing is that librarians are and libraries are adapting significantly. So they're doing click and collect kind of services, Um, They're also providing online services, online story times have gone absolutely crazy. You know, the thing that I really hope that we see from the librarians is more collaboration around that so that we're not having people do the same thing, you know, five times over, but rather creating more quality around those and sharing it more. Um, I think the other thing, you know, we've seen some amazing programs around the country where the librarians are getting into developing packs for people, you know, food packs or packs of um, activities for kids who who are stuck doing homeschooling, you know, for us kids in, the kids in Victoria for the sixth time, you know, for their last two years of schooling, it's been just, hard. you know, 200 days for some of these kids, more than 200 days, 220 days, I think it is, of lockdown cumulative days that they've had um, here in Victoria. And, you know, tough for other people too, I'm not saying we're the only ones. Um, But look, libraries are doing so much in terms of providing Um, service in lots of different ways, home delivery um, was happening in some places where it could be done safely um, with COVID, you know, conditions, Um, so most libraries around the country have really adapted amazingly and done it fairly quickly and and with a lot of effective uh, output.
0: Well, you're a wonderful ambassador for all of those. So thank you very much for talking to us, Paula. Paula, Kelly, Paul talking to us today about uh, the libraries in the modern age, always evolving, but sort of going full circle back to the days Absolutely. of Agora. Absolutely.
1: And just on that note, of course, they were outdoors back then in the Agora. And I think that's the last thing I'll comment on is I think our indoors outdoor spaces is a space that we need to be really focusing on now, with all, it, you know, going forward from whatever, post-COVID looks like I don't think there's such a thing as post-COVID I think it's going to be Mm -hmm. and I think just on that last note is um, as soon as the New York Public Library earlier this year opened the first free rooftop space in Manhattan in the whole of Manhattan Island in New York I thought you know what there's there's the sign once it once New York Public Library does it it's on so I think indoor outdoor spaces watch this space Um, Mm -hmm. and certainly if any of your listeners are interested we have a, a podcast coming up Um, on the 12th of October uh, that RACO is hosting so we're doing some leadership work in this space around um, hearing about how libraries are managing in COVID and what the opportunities are and how to you know move forward particularly around um, indoor outdoor spaces so it'd be lovely if um, any of your listeners wanted to register for that through um, through RACO you can contact us through the website through raco.com.au
0: have you been to Katoomba library
1: I haven't, and I'm dying to go. Um, I have well, to say. when all this
0: is, when all this is over, and the I, next time I, you do a tour, come on up and yes. I'll show you around because I've got a lot a great outdoor space with the yes. best views in the world. I, I, I would can't argue can't that wait. the views over the Jamison Valley uh, at uh, the Jamison Valley at from Katoomba Library upper deck is, yes.
1: you know. World, world class. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've heard that, and I and beautiful Vicky, who's the library manager there, was actually mm. on the Alia as a director, board director, with me during the previous term, and uh, she had invited me to come up a few times, that we just couldn't make it happen. And then, of course, these last two years hasn't even been wow. an option. But you'll have I to make it a wait.
0: priority later.
1: I will. It's on the list. I'm writing it down right now, James. It's on the list. Good on you. Thank you,
0: Paula, so much for talking to us today. Thank you.
1: Absolute pleasure. Thanks, James.